So obviously there's such an incredible picture uh, and precedent for adoption in Scripture. I mean, we're actually going to touch on it a tiny bit this morning. It's an incredible thing that God does when he grafts us into his covenant family. Um, it's an incredible picture that he calls us to as followers of Christ, to, to fight for the marginalized, to fight for those that are, that are out there, to take them into our family, to adopt them as sons and daughters. It's a very very cool biblical picture. And so this month, we're kind of spending time talking about some of these stories. And in March, we're going to launch a support group that'll be meet up here once a month. Uh, Child care be provided, of course. And it'll be for any of those people that are, that are working with or in uh, situations where they're around vulnerable kids or they've adopted or thinking about adoption or thinking about it, getting involved in fostering or respite care, any of those kind of things. Or, or maybe you're just working with at-risk children. We're going to have a, a support group that gets up here to share stories and share lives. And, and kind of intermingle our heart, common, kind of collective heartbeat for that. So we'll give you more information about that. It'll be happening in, uh, in March, but that is unfolding. Uh, we're in the second week of a new series that we've begun. It's a sort of epic journey, and I can only use those words to describe it because I don't really know where we're going to end up at, or how we'll get there or maybe even you know, when or where we will end up. It's you know, two and a half years ago, we started the book of Acts, and, and I just sort of started, and I didn't know where we were going, and, and I kind of feel the same way with John, although, although John has a, a little clearer direction because we know historically from a lot of different accounts where this person of Jesus will ultimately take us. And so uh, we're going to have a unique perspective on it, but we're, we're starting this journey. And I'm not going to make any promises. I'm just going to tell you that we're going to go through it word by word. And John's gospel is uniquely different than the others. And he has one singular view. And a singular view is that he wants to introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ. So for me to desire to do anything else teaching this text would be a, a tragedy, right? So my only goal as a preacher teacher, our only goal for this entire series is that you might see Jesus. That's John's aim and his entire focus. And it's different than the other Gospels. And kind of uh, from a scholastic point of view or a a historical point of view, it's natural to separate John from the other three. We actually call the other three the synoptic Gospels. It's a word that means uh, seeing together or seeing the same because they give a similar view of the historical life of Christ. In fact, most of um, the, the, the kind of those three Gospels, the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, line up together. In fact, many of those sections in there are word for word, meaning they, they had some commonalities or common source or other things. But John is entirely different. It's the most theological of all the Gospels, and it is focused not on telling the histor- historical life of Christ or the historicity of Jesus, but the deity of Jesus. John wants you to see the incarnation. He wants you to see Jesus as God, Jesus in all of his deity. And his entire book is focused, or his gospel is focused on that. In fact, two-thirds of it is focused on just the last week and the events that follow in the life of Christ. So most of his book is not set up to tell you about where Jesus stepped and how he stepped there and the chronological order in which those things transpired. Most of his book is set up to say, this is God, and he loves you, and he came for you. And it's an incredible, incredible account. And we're going to be spending our time there. This is week two. And I won't do this every week, but I'm going to tell you just real quickly how we got, you know, some background in the book of John, how we got to where we are. I promise we won't do it every week. But for those of you here for the first time, you may just want to kind of catch up on these things so you know what we're actually talking about. 
So John, the person, was the uh, brother of James. They were both the sons of Zebedee. Jesus gave them the name, the sons of thunder. He was a disciple and he was an eyewitness to Jesus. He had walked around. He had seen the things that Jesus did. He had been there with the miracles. He had laid his hands where Jesus had laid his hands. His account is a firsthand account. And so he's telling you things that he has seen and heard. And his gospel is incredibly personal. It's incredibly personal. He never addresses himself by name. Instead, he refers to himself as the gospel or the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he does that several times. So he never says, it's me, John. He says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or the three that were there were, were Peter and James and the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when we get there, in about a year or so, when we actually get to that verse, I don't think you understand how much incredible theology is tied into that statement. That if you could say in your heart, or I could say in my heart, I don't know anything else, but I know I'm the one that Jesus loves. Right? The identity that's wrapped up in that's really powerful. We'll get to that eventually. But John identified that deeply. And of course he didn't mean Jesus didn't love other disciples. He just was saying that we have this thing, this, this relationship or this bond or something that has rewritten my heart. Right? I'm the one that he loves. They had this incredible, special relationship. And his gospel is poured out from that personal perspective so that we might see Jesus. Jesus God in the flesh, the incarnation. The book is divided into really two major sections, chapters 1 through 12, which is often called the book of signs, because it's all the miracles and things that Jesus did that pointed to his deity, all right? There are, the, there are a few of the parables and the signs and things that Jesus did to show that he is not some ordinary guy walking around the Judean countryside. And then we have the book of glory, and the book of glory is 13 through 21, and it is basically the last week and so on of the life of Jesus and leads up to death, crucifixion, and resurrection. The entire book is divided into those. It's kind of earmarked with an 18-verse prologue, which we're going to wrap up today, and a 25-verse epilogue, which sort of ties everything together. And that's really the gospel in a nutshell. It's not more complicated than that. Remember, Acts had all these different sections and missionary journeys and points in times and history and covered years and years and years and years. And John is a look at the deity of Christ and the person that stands before you. And what John is basically saying is that, listen, I'm going to tell you some things that I saw with my own eyes, that I witnessed, because I want you to see Jesus, God in flesh, that changed my life and changed the world. John tells us his own actual goal for his gospel is not only that you would see Jesus, but that you might see Jesus, believe in him, and have eternal life. That's why I kind of titled this series after my favorite verse in there, John 17, 3, that says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John's entire gospel is wrapped up in that statement. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's John's focus. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. And we saw last week, and we're going to see this week, that John is, is setting up this prologue to make sure we understand a few things about Jesus. This guy is getting ready to tell us about these incredible stories, these miracles, these things. There are a few unmistakable things that we need to know about Jesus before we can even get started. And that's where we were last week, and that's where we're going this week. We're going to wrap up the prologue today, which is going to be verses 6 through 18, I think is kind of where we are. As a tiniest brief recap, let me remind you about the six things that Jesus, or that John told us about Jesus last week. And I told you those first five verses are so incredibly theologically 
deep and they're so full of life and power that you could just spend, I could have probably spent weeks and weeks and weeks just preaching through the first five verses of John 1 alone because he says some incredible things about Jesus. But he starts off and he says, Jesus is the word. And we talked about what the word means, the logos of God, that God uh, brings into action with his word, that his word has life and healing and his word is everlasting. And we talked about what Jesus, the word, capital W, the spoken, audible action, movement, manifestation, incarnation of God is, right? Jesus is the logos. And John says the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. So he says the first three things you knew about Jesus is that Jesus is the manifestation of God himself. He is the the person embodying the word of God in action and life and healing, right? And he was with God from the beginning. He was always with God. Jesus wasn't created. He is God, the preexistence of Christ. We talked about a lot last week. And he was God. God. So not only was Jesus with God, but he was God in the flesh. And we talked about the first part of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And we've got the makings of that peace right here. That Jesus is the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then John tells us that Jesus was creator, that all things were made through him, and by him, and for him. And so Jesus himself wasn't a created being. He was God in the flesh and earth, humanity, life was made through him, that he has breathed life into your lungs. And this is incredibly important because this is the creation that God is coming to die for, that he made, that he formed, right? That Jesus is creator. He makes sure that we know that. And then the last two things, he says Jesus is life and Jesus is light. And he talks about what those mean, and we kind of echo that, that Jesus uses those phrases himself in John 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 8 when he says, I am the light of the world that has come into this darkness. Whoever walks in me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That Jesus himself refers to himself as life and light, and they aren't throwaway religious terms. In fact, we're going to see the word light come up again this morning. Now, all of those huge theological kind of massive mountains are all wrapped up in the first five verses of this prologue. Essentially, John's saying, I want to tell you about Jesus, but before I do, you have to know who we're talking about. We're not talking about some wandering kind of rabbinic teacher out here doing odd things that's teaching morally good things, but kind of against popular culture. We're talking about God in the flesh, the God that made you and breathed life into your lungs, right? A God that is the true light and the true life. We're talking about that God. And he says, so as you read, whatever it is I'm getting ready to write, you have to understand it in those terms. The second part of the prologue, which we're going to get in today, he's going to take that one step further, and he's going to introduce us to another character to make sure that we're not confused. A guy by the name of John the Baptist. He's going to tell us who John is and who he's not. And then he's going to remind us a couple of other important things about Jesus before we dive headfirst into this incredible life-altering part of redemptive history that will change not only those that read it at that time, but you and me. So before we dive in there today, let's take a moment, let's just pray, and let's ask God to teach our hearts. I know that was a lot of uh, kind of back information, but you know, it's important that we get there. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word, that it is timeless, that it is true. God, that it is right. I thank you, Lord, that you speak through your word. That an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. That we do not take this lightly. 
I thank you, God, that you have made your word become flesh. That your word was not just spoken, but it was spoken into a person. And that person loved us and came for us and died for us and gave us life. Not one of us in this room deserve it. Myself, the chief end of that. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your rescuing. We don't deserve you coming for us. Yet, God, you did. And what we're going to see unfold in these pages is that you did it because you loved creation. And so, Lord, I pray that that truth would echo through our hearts, that we are worth dying for, that we are worth it to you, that we matter to you. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Whatever he needs to teach you, whether it's what I have to say or not, just that God would speak to your heart this morning. Just ask God to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you. Um, Even if you don't know them, we do this every week. We just want to be in the habit of praying for other people, recognizing that Sunday morning is not about me or my entertainment or my... It's about God moving in us. And we want to see him move in other people. So take a moment and ask him just to pray for somebody around you, even if you don't know their name. Lord, for the next moments, uh, teach our hearts through your truth, through your word. Lord, speak directly to our fears and our insecurities and our failures, Lord. God, speak to us with deep reality about who you are and what you came to do and how that should change everything about me. So, Lord, hear our cry, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to wrap up the prologue, uh, verses 5 through 18. We're going to get ourselves through that so we can dive into and start this incredible, incredible story. But John's going to set us up again to tell us a little bit more about Jesus. He wants us to know a couple more add-ons or a couple more really important theological truths that are going to set the framework for the rest of the gospel. So let's pick up in verse 6. We'll go all the way down through 18, and then we'll just kind of work through it together. So this is what John says. He says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was all the and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, 
who is at the Father's side, has made him known. <clears throat> so there's a, a, as you can tell, there's a ton of things there. But John's doing a couple of really important things here that I want us to understand. He's going to introduce us to somebody new. Somebody that's a sort of a central figure at the time because there's still a lot of confusion flying around. And he wants us to tell, tell us who that person is and who they're not. And then he wants to remind us exactly who Jesus is. And then he's going to end with this incredible plea, like this cry out almost, if you will, before he starts the gospel. So John introduces us in verse 6 to a guy by the name of John. So in order to keep everything clear, let me tell you who John, the John that John is talking about, all right? So John, the gospel writer, never refers to himself by name. He only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? So whenever he uses the name John, he's not talking about himself. John was a rather common name, as it is still today, and he's referring to someone else. And although John, the gospel writer, never ascribes this title, we know he's referring to John the Baptist. And that's a title that Christian history has kind of given this really central and important figure. Now, we all probably heard at some point in time the name John the Baptist. John was the forerunner to Jesus. John's entire role, as we're going to see here in just a moment, was to tell about the Messiah that was to come. All right? John is known as John the Baptist because he is known by the rite that he celebrated in the Jordan River, the rite of baptism, which is a different baptism than what you and I celebrate when someone surrenders their life to Jesus Christ, right? We celebrate baptism for the forgiveness of sins as a symbolic movement of what God has done in our heart, going from death to life, dead in our sins, alive and raised in Christ. John's baptism was different. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, John actually tells us what his baptism is for. That my baptism is for the confession and repentance of my sins, essentially preparing my heart for the coming Messiah. So John was a guy who was out in the wilderness proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. And in order to prepare your heart for the coming Messiah, the one that was foretold about in all of Scripture, all of the law and the prophets, we had to recognize our own sinfulness desire to make a change and prepare our hearts for that coming Messiah, essentially pledging ourselves to the law again, anticipating the Messiah was to come. So John's baptism was for the repentance and confession of the sin of my life, preparing me, recommitting my heart to the law, if you will, and preparing me for the Messiah who was coming. That was John's existence. And he's known as John the Baptist because he was doing this baptism thing in the Jordan River and people associated the activity with him. To kind of make things even more interesting, John and, and Jesus are somehow related. Elizabeth, John's mother, and Mary were related somehow. The Bible actually calls them kinsmen. We're not really sure how distant they are. It seems as though Elizabeth is kind of much older, so maybe she's a distant aunt or something, but they're related. And so Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins in some sense of the word. They're, they actually are related. And so there's a really interesting connection here between the Messiah and John the Baptist. And, and there's a lot of confusion going on, even four or five or three, depending on how you look at it, decades later when the Gospel of John was written. Because John the Baptist had been beheaded for decades at the hands of Herod the Tetrarch. He was beheaded, literally killed. And there was still confusion about him. Was he Jesus? Was he the Messiah? Was he the one? Who was this guy? Was he kind of Elijah reincarnated? There's a lot of questions that went around about John the Baptist. And so 
when the gospel writer, John the gospel writer, writes his gospel, he wants to make sure that we understand exactly who this person out there that people are talking about was. Because he wants to make things really clear. Really clear about John the Baptist and really clear about Jesus. And so he says a few things. He says, let me tell you three quick things about John the Baptist so that you know who we're talking about, right? He says, there came a man who was sent from God. So he says, the first thing we know about John the Baptist is that he was sent by God. Now, this is really important because he's not just some guy that we know out there wearing fur and eating locusts and honey and doing odd things that most of culture wasn't doing. He was purposed and he was sent by God. Now, Luke chapter 1 tells you the entire account, if you actually want to go and read it, about how an angel appeared to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who was a priest. And he said, hey, something incredible is going to happen. Your wife, who can't have kids, is about to have a son. And that son has got a really important purpose. He is going to bring the nation of Israel back into a place where they could hear about the coming Messiah. You can read it all in John or Luke 1. It's very cool. But he appears to to Zechariah and he says, something miraculous is going to happen. And I am going to put my Holy Spirit on your son from day one. And he has got a God-given specific purpose, right? And his, his actions are going to be important in redemptive history. He is preparing the way for the one that is to come. Now, this is important because what John the gospel writer is saying is, all of you that are talking about John the Baptist, he's not a lunatic. He's not Jesus. He had a God-given role sent by God, right, to prepare the way for the one who is to come. So he says, John the Baptist was sent by God, right? He also says that John was not the light. He himself, verse 8, was not the light. There is confusion. Was John actually the Messiah himself. There were people that thought that and believed that. Even four decades later or three decades later, there were still confusion around this person. And and John, the gospel writer, says, I want to be real clear about something. John the Baptist was sent by God, but John was not Jesus. He was not the Messiah. I want to lay this out because I'm getting ready to tell you about the Messiah. And I want there to be zero confusion. Now for us, reading all this later makes a lot more sense, but if you're standing in in first century, you know, world here, and people are talking about these figures, and they're out in the desert, or out in the wilderness, and they're doing weird things, they're teaching weird things, like there's some associations that maybe were confusing, and John says, I'm going to make them clear. He was sent by God, but he was not the true light. In fact, he had one purpose, right? The third thing he says is that he came only to witness to the light. So John was sent by God. He was not the light, but he came only to witness to the light. If you want to get really technical, John the Baptist is actually a horrible name for John the Baptist. Christian history has not helped him out any with the title. That wasn't what what his role was. He was just kind of attached to the action. His role was the witness, to bear witness to the coming Christ. His true name should be John the Witness, the forerunner, John the Evangelist, the one that is coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. John himself makes that incredibly clear. He says himself that I am preparing the way for the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. John came only to bear witness to the light that one was coming. All of his baptism, all the teaching that he did was basically to say the Messiah is coming, right? To give credence to the one that was to come. 
Now, John does this. John, the gospel writer, does this because he wants to make everyone understand that he's getting ready to talk about Jesus, God in the flesh. And there's some distinctive things that we have to know about him. And he was not that other guy, right? So he, he sets that up. And he says, now I want to tell you about Jesus. And then he says a few things that we need to anchor ourselves to about Jesus. So we know who John was, sent by God, not the light, bear witness to the light. But then he says, but let me tell you about Jesus. Verse 9, all right? Right at the end of verse 8. He came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives life to every man was coming into the world. So John was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, but Jesus was the true light. Now, this is going to be a thematic movement throughout the entire gospel, light and darkness. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Jesus himself, I said a minute ago, in John 8, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This thematic light and darkness thing is going to be happening throughout the gospel. The world is steeped in darkness and sin and death. And God is the only true light. And light exposes the darkness, but the darkness hates it. Because the darkness doesn't want to be exposed, right? In our own sinfulness, in our own deepest kind of gross brokennesses of our heart, we hate the light because the light shines truth. And truth is at the opposite of sin. And the entire kind of picture of John's gospel is this world steeped in sin and death and darkness. And God, in his infinite and perfect and holy and amazing love-filled light, stepped into darkness Not to condemn it, but to redeem it. That's the gospel. And John says, Jesus is the true light that gives life to all men. God doesn't come as some condemning God to come and just blow away creation for their fails and flaws and all that kind of stuff. He steps into creation as the light to shine in the darkness to redeem brokenness. He is the true light. Light and that light is for all men. It was coming into the world. So we know that Jesus is the true light, light that comes from heaven, God Himself. Listen to verse 10. Second thing we hear about Jesus He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. So this is a little bit of a, of a lengthy one, but think about it with me for a moment. So Jesus created the world, and he came into the world, which he created, but the world didn't recognize him or receive him. And John says two things in those two verses that are, that are actually not the same, but they're very, they're very similar, but they're to two different people groups. The first one we see there is, is pretty obvious, right? So we know that Jesus is creator. We talked about that last week. John talks about it in verse 3. All things were created through him. Jesus is God. And so Jesus, as creator, right, as creator, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. So not only did did Jesus, God, create the world, but he stepped into the world in humanity. This is the incarnation, that God became flesh, stepped into the world that he created. So this is the creator of the world, Jesus, stepping into the world, and the world doesn't recognize him. I mean, you know how much sadness is wrapped up in that statement? That the God that breathed life, in Psalm 139, talks about that he knit us together in our mother's womb. The God that breathed life into humanity, the God that knit you together before you were a thought or had one, 
the God that formed you and made you and nurtured you and cared for you and loved you and led you, stepped into our world and we didn't even know it was him. He says it didn't recognize him. Creation didn't recognize their creator, which is, of course, dripping with theological implications, right? So Jesus, creator, stepped into his creation and creation didn't even know him. But then John takes it one step further, right? He says, not only that, but look at verse 11. He says, not only that, but he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. This is not the same thing that's happening in verse 10. He narrows it down. So who did Jesus come to? He came to his own people. God's wholly chosen people, the Jewish people. That God came to his own, and his own not only didn't recognize him like the world did, but he takes it one step farther. His own did not receive him. Jesus will ultimately end up being crucified at the hands and the cries of his own people. A people that God has protected for thousands of years. A people that God has stood before in a pillar of fire and clouds by night. Manna falling from the sky that he delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. Led across the Red Sea. A people that God protected with his Holy Spirit. A people that God provided for time and time again. A people that were to know God intimately. God came to his own people. And just like the world, they only, not only didn't recognize him though, they didn't receive him, meaning they rejected him. So here's Jesus. God in the flesh, creator, breathing life into your lungs, into my lungs, into all of creation, hanging the stars and the trees and knitting everything together. And he steps into creation. And instead of an overwhelming response that you would give, you would think you would give to creator, parades and celebrations and love and falling at his feet, the world doesn't even know it's him because it's so steeped in darkness. And so he goes to his own people even, and his people don't even know it's him, and they reject him and ultimately crucify him. And then everything hinges on this next verse, which is so super cool, and it's tied in that next word, and the word is yet, and it starts right at verse 12. So we know that Jesus is the true light. He is creator. He came into the world. The world didn't recognize him nor receive him, yet God, there's ever a more powerful world in Scripture, right? A word in Scripture, it's, it's that yet, in spite of, right? In the middle of, whatever you want to ascribe to that word, here is the deep, saddening truth, however. Listen to what he says. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So this is what John says. Let me tell you some deep, sad, and real truth, right? That God made you, created you, breathed life into creation. I mean, formed you, and then stepped into the creation that he made. And instead of being known and celebrated in worship, he's not recognized and he's rejected, ultimately killed and crucified. But... Instead of washing his hands of creation and throwing it away or treating us as our sins and deserve or or treating me as my heart deserves, right? John says, yet, here is the entire picture that I'm getting ready to tell you in the next 21 chapters, essentially. Yet, to those who believe in him, to those who believe in him, he is given the right to become children of God. And then he explains that a little bit by saying, they're not natural children. 
not born of a mother or of a womb. He's going to explain this to Nicodemus in about two chapters. Away when Nicodemus gets real confused and says, how do I get saved? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. He goes, what am I going to do, crawl into my mother's womb? And Jesus goes, you just don't get it. It's spiritual birth. It's new creation. It's rebirth of the heart and life. It's me making you new. This is what he's saying. He says, but to those who put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ, I am giving you the right to be my child. Not born of your mother or of a father's decision, but of a spiritual nature. You know what that is? That adoption picture. That I am grafting all of you into my covenant family. Right? Because most of us in here are not of God's original family. We are not part of God's chosen picture. Jesus came to them and they rejected them. And so therefore Jesus died and opened the floodgates of grace to all of humanity. And he says this, to all, look at verse 12 again, verse 12 and 11, yet to all who received him, every single one who receives and believes in him, he is given the right to be adopted by God, to be grafted in, to be rescued, to be redeemed, in spite of our lack of recognition and our complete rejection. God still, And this is why I've been kind of saying over the past two weeks, this phrase that I've been using, which is God loved you and he came for you, is so real. Because in spite of our darkness and our rejection and our denial and our flat out sort of hatred, if you want to, against God. And I'm not talking about in general, I'm talking about real personal rejection of God. With all of my sin and all of my struggle and all of my pride, in spite of all of that, God loved me and came for me. In spite of my blindness and my darkness, God loved me and came for me. This is the gospel that John is telling us about. That in spite of all of your whatever, God loved you and he came for you. And he's telling his reader here that this is the guy I'm getting ready to tell you about. This is Jesus, the true light that created the world and stepped into it. And the world rejected and didn't recognize him. And yet still, he loved creation enough to give them the right to be called children of God if they receive him and believe in him. So we have those six things, and I'll end it all with this kind of one big picture in a second. He says, John, right, was sent by God. He was not the light. He came to point to the light. But Jesus, Jesus on the other hand, he is the true light. He was the true light. He was creator. And he came into the world, and the world not only didn't recognize him, but it rejected him. In fact, his own people rejected him. But God loved creation so much and so deeply that he gave the right to all those that believe in him, all those that believe in him and receive him can become children of God. And not physical children, but, but born again, new, eternal life that begins today and goes to a point that never ends. And John says, this is the Jesus I'm getting ready to tell you about. And then he makes this incredible plea. And I call it a plea because there's really no other way to really read it as I see it. I read it as almost as if John is saying, please hear me. Listen to what he says in these four verses or five verses. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he whom I said, he comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. 
from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. And he was at the Father's right hand, has made him known. This is what John is saying, essentially. He's saying, all those things in those 13 verses that I just told you, hear me plead with you. Jesus is the word that became flesh. He is the logos that became a person. He is the spoken, healing, life-giving word of God that became a person. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen it. And John's saying, we, me, these people that were with me, we have seen it, we have touched it, we have walked with him, we have watched the lame walk, we have watched the blind have sight, we have stood there and we have beheld his glory. With my own eyes, I have seen it. We've seen his glory, and that glory is of the one, capital one, only, capital only, and only God. When we saw the glory of Jesus, we saw the glory of God. He came from the Father, and he was full of grace and truth. And he says, and even John talks about him. John talks about him saying, I'm not even worthy of him because he was before me, meaning he always was, meaning he was God. And he says, from the fullness of his grace, we've been given every gift. And he's not talking about cars or buggies or houses, right? He's talking about gifts. And he lines up saying, the gift, the law from Moses and grace and truth from Jesus, everything that God has ever done is because of Jesus, his redemptive movement for our lives. And he says, no one's ever seen God, right? But the one and only, which is his reference to Jesus, who sat at his right hand and has made him known to us. In other words, we've seen Jesus, we've seen God. I call this this plea because it's almost as if we could hear John crying out saying, listen, please, hear what I'm getting ready to tell you about Jesus because it will change your life. It will change you. He is God. He's not a teacher. He's not some great moral substitute or some great person walking around saying things in the wilderness. This is the God that made you and breathed life into your lungs, the one that all the law and the prophets told us about, the one that John stood screaming about. This is him, and he has changed me, and he will change you because he is God. He is the true light. He is life. He is creator. And he has come into this world because he loves you and he came for you to rescue you, to redeem you. This is where John is going. The question that most of us have to wrestle with, right? At some point in time in our life, whether that's today or whether that was years ago or whether it's going to be a few years from now is is this. Who do I say Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? Is he what John has laid out? All these weeks, two weeks we've talked about it. Or is he some moral teacher that just kind of out there and I take a few things he says and a few that he does and I put them all together and formulate my own picture of religion or Christian life. At some point in time, every single one of us has to deal with the question, who is Jesus Christ? And John is pleading with you that what he's about to tell you, if you listen to it, will change you forever because he's talking about God. God loves you and he's come for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here and just open your word. And Lord, while these things are are similar to something we explored last week, they're no less timeless and no less important. And the truth is, God, I cannot hear enough that you love me. I cannot hear enough that you have come for me. I cannot hear enough that you are light and that my heart is darkness and that you love me anyway. 
God, you are creator. And you stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And this world, myself included, didn't recognize you and rejected you. And God, I do it every day of my life. But yet you loved me and you love creation so much that if we put our trust and faith in you, we have the right to be adopted by God, grafted into your beautiful and holy covenant family, saved from sin and death, and redeemed. Who is Jesus Christ? Lord, I pray that our heartbeat can unify, can, can be unified in our proclamation that you are our Lord and Savior who has loved us and come for us. We ask this in your holy and perfect name. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.